We have entered back into our study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, This is the Sunday before Lent begins, and we're going to spend really the whole season of Lent in what's called Holy Week. Jesus is week in Jerusalem. That's a lot of Luke. He spends quite a lot of uh, detail and and time writing about what happens during that week, so it's going to take us the whole season, and we'll be moving quick to cover it. But today, we are finishing chapter 19. We're going to look at chapter 19, verses 11 through 48. Jesus has just been, he's he's at Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus has just made this grand statement that he's giving away, you know, half of his his wealth to pay back fourfold what he took from people as a crooked tax collector. And the people are amazed. Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. It's this amazing thing. And here's what happens next. Verse 11. While the people were listening to these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And he summoned ten of his slaves, gave them ten minas, and said to them, do business with these until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to be king over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he summoned these slaves to whom he had given the money. He wanted to know how much they had earned by trading. So the first one came before him and said, Sir, your mina has made ten minas more. And the king said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, you will have authority over ten cities. Then the second one came and said, Sir, your mina has made five minas. So the king said to him, And and you are to be over five cities. Then another slave came and said, Sir, here is your mina that I put away for safekeeping in a piece of cloth. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You withdraw what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. The king said to him, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked slave. So you knew, did you, that I was a severe man, withdrawing what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow? Why then didn't you put my money in the bank so that when I returned, I could have collected it with interest? And he said to his attendants, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten. But they said to him, sir, he has ten minas already. I tell you that everyone who has will be given more, but from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to be their king, bring them here and slaughter them in front of me. After Jesus had said this, he continued on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, when he approached When he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples telling them, Go to the village ahead of you. When you enter it, you will find a colt tied there that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent ahead found it exactly as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying that colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and had Jesus get on it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. 
As he approached the road leading down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they keep silent, the very stones will cry out. Now when Jesus approached and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you had only known on this day, even you, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and surround you and close in on you from every side. They will demolish you, you and your children within your walls, and they will not leave within you one stone on top of another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Then Jesus entered the temple courts and began to drive out those who were selling things there, saying to them, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. Jesus was teaching daily in the temple courts. The chief priests and experts in the law and the prominent leaders among the people were seeking to assassinate him, but they could not find a way to do it, for all the people hung on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, would you... Fill us with the knowledge of your will. Give us wisdom and revelation, Lord, so that we could please you and live worthily of you in every respect. Lord, that only happens if you fill us. So come, Lord, pour out your spirit on us today in Jesus' name and have your way in the preaching of the word. Amen. Amen. Well, of course, I just read quite a long passage, two major scenes. Jesus goes from Jericho to Jerusalem. In Jericho, he finishes his time there telling the story about uh, minas, uh, which um, minas are about four months minimum wage. Oops, sorry, wrong background. But, you know, that says four months minimum wage. And uh, and I made that slide, so that's on me. And... uh, and I'm just going to call Mina's coins today, okay? So when I'm saying coins, that's what I'm referring to. So he tells this story in order to prepare his followers for what's about to transpire, the events that are about to take place in Jerusalem. I mean, after all, late, you know, right away, they're going to see him approach the city as a king. The whole thing about the cult is the symbolism that he is the Messiah, So they're going to celebrate and cheer. Yes, the king is coming. But then they'll watch him weep, like bitterly weep over the city. They will will watch him storm the wrong power center. He's supposed to storm the Romans. Find, you know, go to Pontius Pilate's house. Go to where the, the army garrison. Go there. But no, he storms the temple instead. They won't hear the Romans planning to arrest him and execute him. They're going to hear their own leaders. All this would be very disorienting. And that's why Jesus told this parable. 
as a guide, okay? So uh, we're going to focus on that today. We, on Palm Sunday, we will circle back and look at the triumphal entry in a little bit more detail. Um, but in response to Zacchaeus's repentance and Jesus saying salvation has come to this house and because he's coming near to Jerusalem, it, it says uh, that he told this parable because some believed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. That's why he told it. Now, I, I want to make two quick comments on that as we're getting into this sermon. Um, one, Luke gives us a gift here. This is a decoder ring for the parable. He tells it because they believed the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Therefore, we can assume that somehow the parable is explaining that it's not, right? And, and if we get off track of that guide for what this parable is about, we're going to make it mean all sorts of things and miss its meaning, all right? It's not going to appear immediately, at least not in any way that they expect. That's the first thing. But the second thing is we need to keep ourselves in mind. It's 2024, and we're in Littleton. Nearly 2,000 years have passed since Jesus told this story in Jericho at Zacchaeus' house. No one who is sitting here, I would think, is under the same impression that the kingdom was going to completely appear when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. We've, you know, we've got short memories usually, but we've been studying these stories. You know, some of you all of your lives, you know that it didn't quite happen the way they expected it. Of course, in every age, Christians um, have been convinced in many different ways that Jesus was going to return imminently in their day, in their lifetime. Um, and yet, if some of you are among them, you, you hide it well. <laughs> I, I think to just speak to the room here, we are more likely among those who are not really thinking the kingdom is going to appear immediately. Am I right? You probably are making plans for, you know, the next phase of your life. You're, you're thinking about, you know, if you're in the, the working stage of your life, maybe you're thinking about what retirement will look like or, or you know, what it will be like when your kids grow. Or maybe if you're in later stage of your life, you're thinking about your legacy or, or what you'll do as, you know, as your body starts to um, fall apart. <laughs> Um, you're thinking about those things. You're not necessarily uh, thinking, oh, at any moment, sorry, you know, to boomers, uh, apologize. Uh, at any moment, you're not thinking at any moment Jesus is about to come in glory. We, we kind of live our lives as if that's not about to happen. We're not sure the kingdom is going to appear at all. The nobleman, so to speak, the guy in the story, he's been gone a long time. They were ramping up for military victory in Jerusalem, maybe across the Roman Empire. We're not ramping up at all. We are caught up in local, national, global politics, economic things, sporting events. We are caught up in our everyday lives. They needed to hear 
that the nobleman was leaving before establishing his kingdom. We need to hear that he's returning in victory, having been crowned king. Okay, so let's talk about them for a second. They needed something to hold on to as they processed what would look like a failure in Jerusalem. It's already starting to look like a failure. Yeah, the cult thing, that's cool. He rides in as a king, and then he starts crying. <laughs> Badly crying. And then he goes to the temple, and what's he, what is his plan? So he tells them his plan in the story. Did they grasp it? Well, the fanfare as he entered Jerusalem makes me think maybe they didn't quite understand what he was saying. You know, they're saying, he's here, save us, Hosanna, hallelujah. Jesus tells this story with his plan in mind. He'll ride into Jerusalem with the symbolism of a coming king, but then it'll look like he gets defeated and sent away. Now, he's going to go into the temple and he's going to drive out the businesses that are there. Some of these businesses, according to Matthew and Mark, were money changers. A money changer dealt in coins. We're talking about types of coins today. They were a currency conversion business. You could not use a Roman coin to do business, religious business in the temple. You needed to use a temple coin. So these money majors, money changers were doing an, a, an exchange business and they were making a little, you know, on the side, it's their business. That's, you know, there's a little fee for the exchange, just like in the airport when you travel internationally. Um, so, all right, that, that's what they were doing. And, and the rest of these businesses were, were selling the animals that would be needed for the sacrifices. It was everything that needed to happen there. And, and we can't miss the fact that, that they were setting up in the part of the temple that was meant for the Gentiles. It was called the court of the Gentiles, a.k.a. the court of the nations. And Jesus goes in and he sees all of this business happening right in the place where the nations are supposed to come and pray. My house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, he says. That's what Isaiah 56 says. That's what this house is meant for. But instead, there was a there was this business that was basically extortion happening. I mean, it was is the way you feel if you if, you know if you buy a a hot dog at a sporting event, like 15 bucks, you know, that, that's the same feeling um, in the temple. Taking advantage of faithful Jewish pilgrims, preventing Gentiles for worship from worship. No wonder Jesus was mad. And when Jesus confronts that system, surely it was disorienting again. They needed to hear the parable of the coins. They needed to understand and eventually they remembered because we get told this story in both Matthew and Luke. But we are not them. Most of you here are convinced that this was part of Jesus' plan. You've been told the story enough. We're, we're bizarrely comfortable with the symbol of the cross as a symbol of victory, even though that makes really no sense. We're comfortable with it. Our, our expectations come from these familiar stories, not from any cultural expectations that we have. In fact, we, we miss how foreign these stories 
really are. We, we miss some of the big details. When Jesus tells this story, you know what he's doing? He is playing on the hottest political story in memory. I mean, it, I don't know what a, you know, I don't know what would be an equivalent today. Like maybe talking about January 6th. All I have to do is say January 6th, and we all think of a big, you know, scandalous political story. Well, the hot political story, the one that people were still telling rumors about, was that after, you know, after the Romans had conquered, you know, and there's kind of a, a leadership shuffle, um, you know, Herod was becoming prominent, and Herod had to go to Rome to ask to be given authority over the region. He had to, to ask to become sort of the regional king. And so Herod makes this journey to Rome, and then Herod's son, Archelaus, goes after him to tell the Romans, no, Herod shouldn't be the king. You know, maybe I should. Like, definitely not him. And so this is like had been a big dramatic story. What was going to happen? You know, while Herod is gone, Herod was kind of crazy. He was violent. He was vicious. People didn't really like him. And, you know, so, of course, people were hoping probably that Rome would say, no, you can't be king. And instead he comes back with a crown on his head. Uh, there's a Middle Eastern missionary who was also a New Testament scholar named Kenneth Bailey. He writes this. Uh, such is the real world of the parable. King Herod's trip to Rome was successful. He received kingly power. His son, Archelaus, made the same trip and was banished. No one knows how such a perilous journey will end. The nobleman wants to know, are you willing to take the risk and openly declare yourselves to be my loyal servants during my absence in a world where many oppose me and my rule? In the parable, the master challenges his servants to live boldly and publicly as his servants, using his resources, unafraid of his enemies, confident in the future as his future. So what is this story about? The story is about what do we do while the nobleman is gone? What do we do while we wait? How do we wait? What does it look like? The faithfulness the nobleman is looking for is courageous loyalty. Confidence that he is returning as the victorious king. Even though the kingdom will come in an unexpected way at a time that we don't, don't know, how can we be loyal? Will we be loyal? And to do that, we need a couple things. In order to be loyal, we need a couple things. First, to be honest, we need evidence. We need evidence that this story is actually playing out in reality. All right, we tell this story a lot, but we don't live with that sort of imminence. You know, I kind of called us out. We don't live with that that like, wow, he, he could be arriving any moment. We need proof, perhaps even a warning that this king is in fact returning, that his plan is still in effect, that when he returns, it will be in power. And if we get that evidence, we need to know, what does this loyalty look like? What, what are the coins? How do I put the coins to work, so to speak? All right, so let's talk about evidence. After 2,000 years, can we still believe Jesus' storyline that the king has left and he's coming back? That's a long time. 
Can we still believe the storyline? Well, I think the parable itself guides us for some of the evidence that we can look for. Let me tell you what I mean. First, in the story, the king, you know, or the, the nobleman before he's crowned king, he gathers his servants, he gives them coins, and then he leaves. And it says a delegation from town goes after him to, you know, resist his crowning, right? They don't want him to be the king. And then when he comes back, the third coin holder uh, is the guy who hid the coin away and basically says, look, I, you're not good. <laughs> I didn't want to do your business for you. You, you. you reap where you didn't sow. You, you withdraw where you didn't deposit, man. That's called theft. Interestingly, that was also a way kings in the first century were celebrated. It, it meant you were good at conquering things, but we'll leave that aside for now. Uh, this guy is criticizing the nobleman. He's saying he's, he's unjust. So there are naysayers in the story. The first, you know, it's a strange piece of evidence, but the first thing I would say we look for is, are there naysayers who are saying this king is unjust? Friends, there's a whole movement. Uh, you know, we were talking about it in our men's Bible study every Thursday morning, 7 a.m. You're welcome, guys. Um, <clears throat> free burritos. Uh, so we were talking about that there, and we were talking about this movement called protest atheism. That, that, that's the idea, you know, the, a protest atheist says, there's no God and I hate him. <laughs> a protest atheist says, even if your God was real, I wouldn't want anything to do with him. He is, he is unfair. He's, he's, you know, he's choosy. He leaves a bunch of people out. His punishments seem way too dramatic. I don't want anything to do with that God. He's unfair. Jesus is describing what, you know, throughout every generation has existed. It's okay, so that's there. Uh, second, one of the great proofs of the king's existence, uh, you know, of this story being true, would be uh, you know, producing the coins, so to speak. If the coins are out there, you know, they're like, we need to send Indiana Jones to look for the Minas. All right. If the coins are out there, we could say, oh, well, someone did leave these behind. So are the coins out there? You know, find the coin. At least we've got evidence that the story's in motion. Well, could the coin be an actual coin? Um, all right, that's probably pushing the parable too far. You know, it, it's tempting to read this one and Matthew's version uh, and see the coins as actual riches. I, I can remember first being sort of hit by this parable uh, when I was in college. I, I went to, I had an incredibly luxurious college experience, Southern California, private Christian school, wonderful, everything's beautiful, everyone's beautiful. It's this comfortable, wonderful place. You're learning from these incredible professors. You know, it's just, it, it, it was awesome. Um, it was like four-year camp on the beach with a degree at the end. And I'm, re and I'm reading this 
parable thinking, oh my gosh, you know, in the, in the Matthew version, one guy is given five talents. Talents are massive riches, not just um, what the mina is. You know, another guy's given two, another, they're, they're given this huge amount, and, and then they're judged based on what they do with it. And I, I'm reading this thinking about my life and, you know, sort of my suburban upbringing and all that I had available to me, and I'm thinking, oh, I, I don't know if I qualify for investing these things well, you know, for using what I've been given. And so I kind of hope that it's not actual riches that it's referring to. You know, none of the men came back and said, look, I wanted to use it. I just wasn't sure how or, you know, because people were so opposed to your rule, it was a little uncomfortable to invest it once in a while. Or, you know, I was scared and reluctant except with those who were already loyal to you or, or whatever. None of them say that, so I can't really connect the dots there anyway. But I, I don't actually think it's about material riches. I will mention those again. In this parable, loyalty to the ruler while he's away is putting his investment to work. He says, take these coins and put them to work. If it's material, we might think that Luke was hoping his, you know, his audience, Theophilus, a rich Roman, you know, government official would read this and be inspired to put his own coins to work for the church. But, <clears throat> friends, I don't think the coin is material. We've got to zoom out. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is part one of a two-part series, Luke and Acts. And in Luke and Acts, you, you know, the middle is Jesus' death and resurrection, and then he's in Jerusalem, and he gathers his followers together. He gathers his servants together, and they say, is the kingdom about to come? Is now the time? And he says, you got to wait here in the city until I give you something. And so they wait in Jerusalem, and Acts chapter 2, they receive the deposit. What's poured out on them is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is poured out on his followers. They are given this investment. In fact, Paul will later call it a deposit and a seal of our salvation, the Spirit. And then they go out and they begin putting it to work, talking about what God has done. And more people experience the presence of the Spirit. You see it sort of spreading and multiplying. You see the coins multiplying throughout Acts. I can't help but hear Peter's voice in the temple courts. This is in Acts chapter 3. You know that Peter and John are walking into the temple courts and there's a beggar there who's, who's lame. He can't walk. And um, and the beggar is asking for money, and Peter looks at him and he says, you know, uh, he says, look at me, which is interesting. Um, we won't talk about that right now. So the guy looks at him and he says, uh, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. He's not giving him coins. He's restoring him completely. There's this outpouring of the Spirit's power. The man is restored. He walks. If we have evidence of the Spirit's presence, then we have evidence that the coins are still at work and multiplying. Friends, consider simply this. 
that the body of Christ, the community of believers, has multiplied. And there are people, you know, throughout today, there are people in every country on earth who will gather some in, in public and beautiful cathedrals, some completely in secret to worship Jesus. It's multiplied out. I think the church itself and what God is doing through the church is evidence that the coins are out there. The third piece of evidence is this. In one sense, the nobleman, the king, already did depart and return. He says he's going to a far country to be crowned king. Well, then what does Jesus go and do the next week? He dies, and he is put into a tomb, buried, dead. He goes into the distant country of death, and he returns alive. For those paying attention, this is proof that he is indeed the king he claims to be. So now if he departs to receive his kingdom, we have much more confidence that he will be successful. Prove the resurrection, and it's just a matter of time for the rest. Okay, if that's enough evidence, the question is, how do we put the coins to work? How do we put the coins to work? The, the, the translation we... Uh, read says, do business with these. It's this one wonderful long Greek word that has the roots of the word pragmatic in it, but it just means take this and get it out there in circulation. You know, start getting this, get this going in the marketplace. So put these to work. Now the first act of putting the coin to work for you and I, I think is a matter of belief. It's a matter of faith. We have to believe both in the character of the nobleman and in the value of the coin itself. Remember, the third recipient of the coin didn't believe the nobleman was good. And the nobleman let him stay in that belief. I think that's a better description of hell than, than a lot of the symbols of, of fire and darkness and judgment and weeping and all the this idea that he just lets him stay in his belief about what he's like. It, that's, it's, it's this gracious judgment in a way. I mean, he slaughters the other guys, so there's judgment, judgment too. Um, but for us, do we believe that this nobleman, this king, is good and generous? That he has, in fact, given you a deposit? Friends, I wonder if one of the biggest struggles for us as believers is, is God has actually given his presence to you, his power, the, like the, the creative, the spirit that hovered over the waters at creation is in you you. That's what this is asking us to believe. And that he is, in fact, returning to follow up on his investment. Uh, the second act of putting the coin to work is in the word loyalty. So the first one is in the word faith. The second one is in the word loyalty. Loyalty. Be loyal to the ruler who owns the coins in a market that doesn't want to trade in these kingdom coins, we defy the odds and put the name and representation of Jesus into circulation. We speak his name. We announce that his kingdom has come near. 
we ask him to show his glory. We put his coins to work in our lives. Putting the coins to work, in other words, is multiplying the Spirit's presence by bringing more people into the loyal community of the King. Putting the coins to work involves sacrificial, loyal commitment to the community of his people, which for you is this funky group of people right here. Commitment to this is part of putting the coins to work. And the third act of putting the coins to work is going to seem like a bit of a curveball based on what I said earlier. It is generously caring for the poor. Let me explain. The more the coin, which is the spirit, transforms my life, the more I see everything else that I have as a freely given gift. Do you follow the logic there? If the Spirit is in me and I realize that I am tapped in to the, to the power and reality of the God who created everything, the God who provides everything, who gives breath to our lungs, then everything else that I have becomes something that he has freely given, is at his disposal. Everything else that I have, I realize, was undeserved. I didn't have anything to do with, you know, who my parents were, what my mental capacities are, what my physical stature is, and neither do you. Where you were born, what experiences have shaped you, all of that, you begin to realize is grace to make you exactly the agent he needs you to be in your circle of influence. The recognition itself of the Spirit begins to multiply the coin into our own hearts and minds. Everything becomes his. He'll use your strengths, yes. But you know what he really loves to use? Your weaknesses. Your weaknesses. I mean, listen to what both of the first two guys who did well with the coins, I mean, dramatically well, fivefold, tenfold the investment, fivefold the investment. They said, your coin has produced ten more. It's him who does it. Your coin did it. They were free to put the coin to work because they never thought it was theirs. We can learn this by contrast. The one who hid the coin away and did nothing because he assumed the nobleman was basically a crook. This parable, it's a subtle and powerful invitation to know the nobleman better. That's what Dave was challenging the men with this week. Know him better. The, the, the third guy didn't know him. He didn't know who he really was. Because he didn't realize who the nobleman was, he played it safe. He kept the coin as a memento, folded away for safekeeping, merely a memorial of an absent ruler. It had no power in his life. On the other hand, the two who put the coin to use treated it like it was a sign and seal of the, of the king's presence. The, king, the coin bore his power and his authority and they just let it work. He did the work. The coins did the work. That's how they understood it. The last way that we can put the coins to work and practice receiving the coins is right here at this table, the communion table, the Lord's table. When Paul instructs the, the church in Corinth about the Lord's table, he, he makes a few points worth repeating. 
First, he's arguing in that letter, the, the Corinthians, they were just having the rich eat first, and then they were running out of stuff, and the poor in the community weren't getting any of the bread or wine. They weren't participating in the feast. And what Paul says is they were fundamentally misunderstanding that the coins are not about material goods. They're about the fact that the Spirit has claimed all, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile alike, and made us part of his kingdom. And so we all come to the table together. And second, Paul says, whenever we come to this table and eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until... He comes. In a sense, Paul is quoting this parable. I don't think he actually thinks he is, but in a sense, he is. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim, in other words, that by his death, he has invested coins in us, and we get to put them to work in the marketplace until he comes. And when he comes, he will collect on his riches, and you're part of his riches. You are. So, Let's prepare our hearts for the table. Lord, thank you for investing your riches in us, Lord. I, I, I'm, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. Lord, I, I often use the things that you've given me as if they are for my own ends, for my own luxuries, my own comforts. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on us for being fearful with the coin that you've given us. And instead, Lord, I ask that you would set us free to see it as your coin and to let your power flow through it. And so, Lord, we come, and when we receive this bread and drink this cup, let us again have that tangible experience of your investment. You're putting that coin into the piggy bank of our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.